Den här podden är ett samarbete mellan Aftonbladet Kultur och Institutet för framtidsstudier. En världsledande tvärvetenskaplig forskningsmiljö upptagen med de hot och möjligheter mänskligheten har att hantera imorgon och på lång sikt. Framtiden är gemensam och går att forma men vem ska bestämma över teknologi, klimat, demokrati och information? Med ny kunskap och kritisk reflektion fattar vi bättre beslut tillsammans. Följ Institutet för framtidsstudiers forskning på iffs.se. Welcome to the first episode of the new and old podcast, which we now call The New World. This is a podcast for Aftonbladet Kultur with me, Karin Pettersson, culture editor at Aftonbladet, and you, Georg Dietz. Yes, uh, thank you for having us back. Uh, I'm uh, currently the editor-in-chief of the new institute, uh, Hamburg-based Institute of Advanced Study and the platform for change. And this is the continuation of a podcast that Karin and I started three and a half years ago in the shadows of democracy. Nothing much has changed. So we decided to start anew. The firm podcast was called Start Wearing Details to Follow. Now it's more um, optimistic, I think. Um, But the aim is still the same to find ideas for progressive transformation of society. Yes, and you could say even that the background to us restarting this project is that our conviction is that the current way we do things um, in politics, society, uh, human beings, it's not sustainable. And we need to explore ideas uh, for what comes after, uh, really. And uh, this podcast is also a collaboration with the Institute for Future Studies here in Stockholm. So who to better start this new season with than uh, the rock star Swedish philosopher uh, Martin Haglund. Um, We are so happy that you're here. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. With his uh, book This Life, which is out in Swedish now um, and um, has been widely hailed uh, as a milestone in contemporary philosophy from sources as I didn't check all of them, Mm. probably maybe even from the right, but from the center, the New Yorker, James Wood, a Mm. very rave review to more lefty outlets than uh, like like Jacobin. Yep. So so that's an interesting fact, which we might discuss. Um, this um, sort of broad appeal to a s- certain lefty um, spectrum of society. Um, it's a book um, that is, depending on your standpoint or temperament, about atheism or Marxism, which is not the same. <laughs> some people might confuse that. <laughs> it has some certain some, some relations, but... Yep. Uh, but it's not the same, and we will talk about that confusion maybe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Martin Haglund is professor at Yale for comparative uh, literature and humanities, and the previous books uh, were about um, were called "Dying Time," "Dying for Time," "Dying for Time," about Proust, uh, Virginia Woolf, and uh, Nabokov, and, and um, psychoanalysis. Actually, even though you can't say, see that in the title, okay. For <laughs> <But> those <laughs> interested, which just tells you that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, radical atheism about Jacques Derrida. Um, this book, This Life, is about finitude. Um, it's um, also about capitalism, and the relationship is not quite an easy one. So, very welcome, Martin Heglund. Thank you so much. So, um, we have uh, about an hour 
so plenty of time uh, or not at all enough. I mean, it's just this life. Just one life that yeah. we have, just this one hour that we have. Uh, so let's spend the first part of this uh, conversation on uh, the background to the mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. and how, did, how it came about, um, what happened along the way, maybe when you worked on it. Um, mm-hmm. where, how did the, this project start, Martin? Why, when and, when and where and, uh, and how? Well, the project uh, really started, or the idea for this kind of book started with that. My previous books in English that were published by academic presses, I I received a lot of response to those books, even from readers who normally do not read books published by academic presses or advanced books of philosophy or literary theory, who were gripped by my fundamental arguments about life and death. Um And so it really started uh, as an experiment for me, whether like, could I write without sacrificing any of the intellectual ambition and depth? Could I write for a broader audience? Uh, my Early on, my motto for the book was like, maximal ambitions, minimal alibis. That was the slogan. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. what I mean by that is uh, one thing that's very easy to fall into in academia is that you uh, start hiding behind alibis or just the parameters of a certain conversation and moves within that conversation. But the significance of those moves or interventions are very restricted to that context. So, um, so what I wanted to do When a lot of academics, at least in the U.S., write broader books, they usually just do a diluted version of something they've already done. But I wanted the book to actually be my most uh, advanced and pioneering version of arguments I had been pursuing for a long time. So that's the maximal ambitions. Mm-hmm. But then the minimal alibis is like writing about it in such a way that uh, nothing but the most essential conceptual vocabulary and so on, and and finding a way of... Um, uh, drawing in a wide range of readers, so that was really the ambition. But does it does the book also come from um, pain, or I mean, from your own existential uh, struggling with the? Uh, what's the? I mean, what is really the driving force? Is it your own questions or your own mm. um, struggle? Uh, what? Yeah. What, oh. What's the question? I mean, what is the question? Car goes right in. What's yeah. the question that the book tries to answer for you? Uh, did you know the answer also when you started the book or did you understand as you wrote it? Well, uh, I think um, all of my books from my first book in Swedish uh, have uh, stemmed from, um, you know, I've always started from the most fundamental existential questions in all my work uh, and really about like wanting to do justice to our status as finite beings, vulnerable, dependent, fragile beings and like, uh, you know, resisting all paradigms that try to see that as a lack or restriction and really showing why that's both the possibility and the risk, the chance and the threat of anything mattering, you know, and that's that's a lived reality. Mm. And the whole point for me of working on philosophy and literature and politics is like finding a language to do justice to that predicament. Mm. And already as a teenager, my work on this started because uh, when I was, uh, you know, so much, I cared about philosophy and literature, but so much of those discourses I felt didn't do justice to that, didn't have the right language for that. So that's what I've been trying to to do from the beginning. That's super interesting 
word, I think pain in, in that yes. context. And yes. I had a different word and not, not that we want to psycho, sort of maternity into a psycho. <laughs> I analyze you, session. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it is also a political category, uh, fear. So right. if it's a book that's, um, I, I would say devoid of fear in some way, which is unusual, unusual, <laughs> <laughs> especially if it's a book about death. Yes. Um, and, um, speaks to the optimism of the book, uh, but, but maybe also you can unpack that. So how you, where you see fear, I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't only come from religion. I mean, you could argue that religion is a specific answer to a mm -hmm. specific fear, that of death. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, so if you, you say that it's not a personal pain, that's interesting. So if that's, I take that. But what's the, what's the aspect of fear in that? I mean, not yeah. that you, no, not, yeah. not you so specifically says not, not pain, but, mm -hmm. but the aspect of fear, where's, well, so, so, so yeah, no, I wasn't denying that there was personal pain involved, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but um, it's interesting that you uh, focus on the sort of absence of fear, because I would say, uh, yeah, it's not a book pervaded by fear, but it is a book about anxiety in lots of ways. And there's an important distinction between fear and anxiety. I take fear to be, you know, uh, you know, you're fearing something external to yourself, whereas anxiety is a sense of like, you know, that what matters is at stake in what you do. And, the, and anxiety can both have a sort of enlivening function and, and a, um, uh, you know, a worrying, difficult function. So, like, one of the things that the books try to do is show that like, instead of thinking that the ideal form of existence would be to be free of anxiety, uh, it's a matter of, like, owning our anxiety as an index of what matters to us and that we are at stake in what we do and how we do it. Uh, so it's very much a book about owning anxiety but that's different than displacing that anxiety as just an external object of mm. fear. Oh, the reason I'm worried and fear something, this is the movement of fear, this is the phenomenology of fear. You think of like, instead of owning that, like, I am constitutively anxious because I care about what I do when it can go wrong and I might have to be receptive to changing what I do. You think like, no, the reason I'm worried is just because it's an external object. And if I can flee from it or kill it or get rid of it, I'm going to be at peace. That's the fear movement. Uh, but that actually hides a deeper anxiety, the way in which, like, I'm worried about who I am and what I do. And we should own up to that anxiety as a condition of our freedom. That's super interesting um, in some way, because I think some maybe you can, I mean, we're um, simplifiers in some way. And then right. also no, um, antipodes. Yeah, we're journalists. Uh, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are we? That, that. I, yeah. Yeah. No. Yes. So let's pretend. Uh, let's pretend. No, no. So the, the point about fear and anxiety, I would think, is interesting because my so if, just listening to you, I, I thought, is, is fear uh, an element of the right and anxiety something of the left? Or so if to be more specific, specific to your book's point, yeah. so if you take two words that are yeah. claimed by the right yeah. distinctly yeah. over the last mm -hmm. decades, freedom yeah. as a yeah. political, as a, as a philosophy of the market and yes. or free speech or yeah. sort of um, elements that are Pseudo-universalist, I would say, yeah, but but, yeah. but uh, suppressing minority rights and, yeah. and, and 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 other democratic instincts and and, f and faith as a prototypical um, instrument of fear, as we discussed. Yeah. So yeah. so so is 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 that? I mean, for moving from fear to anxiety or moving these words yeah. from the right to the left, is that an underlying interest of yours? Absolutely, absolutely. So to begin with, the freedom point. One very important motivation for the book, and especially the, the second half, the explicitly political half of the book, was precisely to uh, counter the way in which the right has appropriated the discourse of freedom in the last 30 years, especially, and the way the, the left has tended to retreat 
from that language of freedom uh, and really making the case that if we're going to be serious about the modern commitment to freedom, uh, the only way we can fulfill and honor that commitment is actually through uh, reviving Marx in the way I'm trying to do. So uh, so that's very important. And it's a similar thing um, with the faith language that instead of um, ceding that to the right or to religion and so on, really uh, showing that there is a more... Uh, practical sense of faith and commitment that and value that really like the left can own all of that language, you know, and not be on the defense on any front. <laughs> but when you're on the offense, you have to like own the anxiety of like because you're actually owning up to your commitments and 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 staking out uh, the commitment to uh, um, freedom and progress that you're advancing. And thereby you also have to put yourself at, at risk in various ways. So. So there's also, uh, I mean, Georg, you said you talked about fearlessness, and I uh, maybe we should structure. I mean, your, your book is really two parts. So the first part is about uh, faith and your arguments around around religion, and then you come to this more political program, or where you kind of end up in your Marxist analysis. But there's a fearlessness in my in my view in your in that you follow your argument all the way to the end. Right. And I think that's interesting because there's something in this day and age and the moment, the political moment that we live in, and I think this is maybe, and I'm interested to hear what you think about this, maybe this is why your book is also so uh, loved and so well received, that there's just this fundamental conflict between the problems, uh, existential problems that we are facing and the things happening in the political realm. So there's just a major gap or mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't make sense. There's just this abyss between yeah. our fears then yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, and what's happening in this talk uh, yeah. um public sphere. So do you think that's why people like your book is that why it's so well received and uh, yeah what do you think yeah it's a great question i mean i think it's one aspect of the reception and the way i've come to think of it lately is in and this is directly related to the anxiety issue actually the relation between what we can call breakdown and breakthrough mm. so like we are living at a time when like the sense of uh collective crisis or breakdown is very intense you know and there's as you started us off like there's a widely shared sense mm. that like well it's not sustainable the way we lead our lives uh, and, and the way we form our society so there's a sense of like breakdown on these sorts of certainties and and just as in the individual breakdown of crisis it's an opportunity to raise really basic questions about what you're doing and what you value and what you need to change uh, but maybe at those moments of breakdown, the difference between fear and anxiety is more important than ever. Because if you conceive that as like, just turn that breakdown anxiety into fear, then it's like, well, it's only because we just have to get rid of these alien elements mm. that are ruining our harmonious society mm. or something like that. Whereas when you really own the anxiety, you own the question the anxiety-laden question, like, what do we ought to do? How do we ought to lead our lives? And the book just... <sighs> I've tried to write the book in such a way that it just goes to the heart of that and owns that question completely. Just both formally as that's at the heart of any free being, that the question what you ought to do, but then also like 
fleshes that out in concrete ways. And I think people have really responded to... I mean, I'm a completely non-ironic person, and it's a completely non-ironic book, which is also like makes yeah, it... Yeah, that's yeah, true. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and I think that's also... What's For people, postmodernist, that's quite uh, yeah, uh, an yeah, achievement. I've never been a postmodernist. <laughs> but, uh, but it's really like, that's sort of my personal disposition, but it's also the way... I think th that's something I hear a lot about the book, that it's just this like... Uh, it takes on whatever scale it operates it takes all these questions maximally seriously and interpolates the reader in a way that uh, I take the reader very seriously too and, and it's been uh, sort of it's been really amazing to see how people respond to that so we were reading this spring um, The Plague by yes. um, Camus and um, I was just uh, struck when rereading your book this summer that I mean these books seem to be so much in dialogue with each other and I mean you um you in the book you closely read great uh, works of literature yeah. uh Kierkegaard Knausgård C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. uh but Camus is not in there and I was wondering why <laughs> Yeah it's interesting uh because lately this didn't happen in the earlier reception but lately several people have asked me about the relation between the book and existentialism. Yeah. Um, sure. Was Camus an existentialist? No, I mean, it's, these uh, terms are so vague. Yeah, you yeah know? but no, yeah. just, I mean, yeah. I guess you, just the idea of staying with the pain and staying yes. with responsibility, Absolutely. not shying away, Absolutely. not looking like, not looking to, you know, after the plague or yes. what happens outside your closed town, but just staying no, with claiming it. Claiming humanism. Yeah, claiming humanism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not the usual dynamic. The mansplaining dynamic is not usually the case. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, but sort of claiming then enlightenment as yeah. a tradition so for the left. Maybe that's, yes. that's um, but maybe also let's, what you said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but maybe let's go to the yeah. central uh, concepts of your book. Mm -hmm. And um, what is uh, spiritual freedom, Martin? Yes. So <laughs> what is freedom? Well, so I'd make a distinction in the yes. book between uh, natural freedom and spiritual freedom, mm. which is not to say that spiritual freedom is supernatural. It's distinctly kind of natural freedom. But all animals are free in the sense that, uh, you know, there's a freedom of movement and there's a sort of determination on the basis of living being, what, what, what counts for it, and so on. But for us... Uh, So, I mean, you can also say other living beings, they have a sense of what they ought to do. Uh, you know, if I'm a cat, you know, I, I have to do things to maintain my life uh, and I can fail to do that. That's why I can be in pain even if, uh, as an animal. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, I lead my life in light of an ought. Uh, but, uh, you know, that principle itself... Is can't be called into question. It's not at stake. I'm not anxious about that principle. I might be worried as a cat about like finding food and shelter, and I don't want to be uh, cold and so on. But for us, and this is what makes us spiritual free, there's not just a sense of what we ought to do. There's a question whether we ought to do what we supposedly ought to do, which is to say we can change and question the principles in light of which we lead our lives. Mm. And that's the sort of like distinct way in which we are free. Uh, and Uh, uh, so, so that's the sort of basic definition, and then I much unfolds from that that we can talk about. But that's really the, and that's directly related to the anxiety question. That that uh, uh, again, for us, 
the worry or the risk is not just that like we won't be able to sustain our lives, but that like we can come to judge that the very form of our lives or the very principles in light of which we lead our lives are unworthy of us or a waste of time and so on. Yeah. And you're arguing then that we do not use this f- potential for for freedom. Yes. I mean, there, there are like, so we can say that on one level, we have always, in a minimal sense, we've always been spiritually free because there's always been a question for us. You know, we don't know how we're supposed to live our lives, mm. unlike other animals. And that's been... And we know, have lived our life as a human species very, very differently. Di- very different which ways. Which we tend to forget o- exactly, sometimes. Exactly, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's another thing. Because like, we should say, like this word spiritual, which people tend to think about as like, oh, something supernatural or immortal and so on. I'm using it in Hegel's sense, where we are spiritual beings because we are social, historical beings, mm. unlike other animals. Mm. We are the only animals we know who has a history in the sense that we, you know, are, we have organized our lives in relation to very different principles. So like all other species that we know of, it's the same cycle, it's the same principles. Whereas we, as you, as you recall, we, you know, we've been uh, slaves and masters, you know, serfs. Now we're capitalists and wage laborers. Like we, yeah, so we have a history in that sense. And, and um, on the one hand... We have always been spiritually free in that history. But then there's a question of the degree to which we can come to uh, actualize and develop our spiritual freedom. And that's the sort of historical task. And that's in the argument of the book, which is the central term, connected to finitude. Um, yeah. Can you describe that, that only through finitude? Death. Yeah. Death is the more... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Use sorry, but usual <laughs> word. I'm sorry, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> only through death, freedom is possible. Yes, absolutely. And again, um, it's important for the book to first single that out as a general truth about all living beings, because it's also true that, like the sort of freedom I was talking about in other animals, is also linked to uh, their relation to death and that they're mortal. I mean, if if all living beings are self-maintaining, uh, then that activity of self-maintenance always is in relation to the possibility of breakdown and death, because otherwise I wouldn't have to sustain myself. Um, and uh, uh, in us, that comes also with a higher form, that like precisely because uh, uh, we uh, are time is finite, we can ask ourselves what's worth doing with it, what's worth doing, what's worthy of devoting ourselves to. Um, so that's another sort of important strand in the book. And, and and the other term is the secular faith. So so only in this world can we find meaning. Yes. So and only in this world is that what it, what it, what the claim is? The idea of secular faith we can flesh it out in a number of ways. But I think it's very helpful to think about it in terms of that uh, whatever we believe in as an end in itself, whatever we're committed to as a cause for the sake of which we're doing what we're doing, uh, say you know one of the causes of my life is, say, philosophy, you know, and that's, but that doesn't exist without those people who keep faith with that practice, you know, and, and secular faith is precisely supposed to designate that, like, what we believe in and what matters to us doesn't exist independently of us sustaining our devotion to that practice. Um, and that makes it different from an idea of what I'm calling religious faith, where ultimately what you believe in is something that exists independently of, of our practices and us sustaining it. And just to make the structure of the book again clear and, and maybe connect it to the question of why it's so successful, which mm-hmm. we have raised before, um, it's because it's, 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 a very, it's a hugely ambitious book, as you 
said, so without alibis, um, <laughs> but it's ambitious in very different ways. And one could say it's actually you could use just the first part to love it or just the second part to love it. But yeah. I guess the genius is to just <laughs> combine those two arguments, which we can also discuss why that is. But just to make that point again, so um, that one aspect could be seen as a wrestling with religion. Mm-hmm. And then so if all of a sudden Marx makes us yeah, of, uh, slowly but, the way through. But don't through. you think, because, I mean, I'm not a religious uh, person at all. Um, and I, I mean, you could ask, I guess, as a religious person, read the first half of the book as an argument where you, where you struggle with, like, why is this necessary in my life and what function does it fill? But for me, as a non-religious person and as a, someone, a person from the left, it also, I think, uh, I would also interpret part of the success as dealing with, I, I think, the political project of the left has been so much about material conditions, which you yeah. come to yeah. at the second part of the book, and yeah. you say, which is necessary, it's fundamental, but yeah. it also, it starts with something else. It starts with a question about uh, meaning, yeah. really, and, uh, yeah, what it means to be a human being, what's really, imp- what is really important in your life. And, uh, and with, was, uh, with or without religion. Uh, the left let go of that, you, you think, of that yeah. aspect of, um, I do think that. Of, of being a human? Yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah. What do you think? No, I think it's true. I think so that, that prop, prop, <laughs> again, yeah. I can't repeat. So I can't repeat no, what you, you just said. No, you can agree with me. That's um, fine. I'm, um, I'm happy. happy. I agree to with hear you. That. So, but I would <laughs> use my words. I think it's interesting that the left has tried to come up with policy issue, uh, solutions for existential problems without looking at the existential problem itself and having, and having an inside approach to, um, an answer from within. Yeah. From that sort of p- no, because what you need or... to do, yeah, pain. Because then you're back in the pain. I mean, to to talk about what it means to be a human being, it's about admitting that there is pain and difficult choices and uh, loss. And uh, I mean, there and and also that politics politics won't be able to solve that. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's what the left has not want, been wanting to talk about. Um, for, for different reasons. I'm just riffing here. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I mean, I think all of those aspects are relevant. I think also what I've heard from a lot of people and, and what was part of my vision for it is also to show a sort of holistic vision of how uh, all of these different commitments, you can see them as sort of unified in a deep way and as a way of like uh, following through on values and commitments that we can, that we can share. And... I th- what I want to stress, though, too, and this is important to understand, often the first part of the book is framed as a critique of religion, which is not, the, in my view, the primary thing that it is. I mean, it's really a way of trying to show, this is a way of elaborating the answer to the definitive question, that uh, it's about how we should think about what would be the highest good. Uh, and the idea that the highest good would be, even if you don't think you can achieve it, is mm. something that would liberate us from pain and mortality Mm. and risk and so on. That's an assumption that a lot of people share, even if you don't have religious beliefs. Uh, And that's a sort of sense that like our finitude uh, is a lack, you know, something that will always fundamentally uh, make us long for something beyond this life. Even someone like Sartre, who was a staunch atheist, Mm. that's what he thinks. You know, he thinks that, uh, you know, we are condemned to be an unhappy consciousness because we'll always long to be God and we can never be God, you know. And one of the things I'm trying to show in the first part of the book is say, like, actually, it's not uh, 
uh, our finitude and fragility is a condition for anything to matter. And hence, even the highest good wouldn't be like a final state of final repose, but would itself have to be fragile. So, and that's supposed to set the stage then for uh, uh, the the restrictions and what we need to overcome is not that, but, you know, the inadequate forms in which we live out our finitude and our relations to one another. Mm. And then that's the emancipation of the second half of the book. Mm. So it's very important for me that to frame even the first half of the book primarily as a positive case for why an invi- for why we shouldn't see our embodiment, our finitude as a lack, but as a condition of possibility for what we value and thereby get a different understanding of what is at stake in many religious practices too. So... Yeah, because I mean, what you're saying, and I think this, I mean, this really sp- speaks to to me is is that only uh, just to I don't know make this your argument then maybe very simplistic, but it's only in the shadow of death can we uh, can you experience like real love, for example. Otherwise, I mean, in in the face of eternity or. Uh, yeah, uh, paradise or the afterlife, it wouldn't be real. Or it wouldn't, no, it wouldn't be the same. Um, exactly. And that's why the notion of life so, yeah. is so important because, like, what what means to that showing that, like, if, if what's distinctive about living beings is that they have, they can't just be, they have to do something to sustain their lives. Uh, and that's what animates us, that we have to be engaged in that activity. And that activity wouldn't be animated, it wouldn't be valuable, it wouldn't be at stake unless if that activity falls apart, you die. Mm. Uh, so that's the, you know, I explained this on many levels, but I think that's an intuitive way of grasping it and then yeah. seeing that that's actually a structural truth of everything we care about. Uh, you know, the project of the podcast, you know, it's not, you're not doing it so that it won't fall apart, but mm. part of what animates you is that like, yeah, we could do it poorly, it could fall apart and that's part of what sort of motivates us to care about it. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and I, uh, I think we'll move soon to the second part of your book, but just uh, to stay uh, a tiny bit longer on the first part, because I would like to ask you about literature, how, the yeah. way you use and read literature, also as a culture editor, because yeah. there's something uh, wonderful in this book for me as a person who has been, I think, in my life, been separating my my literary life and my political life, yeah. and I've been. Uh, you know, playing out the, the politics of life in a different arena, and then maybe been looking for meaning and 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 something else, and and these discussions about pain and love and loss mm. in literature. But what you do is you try to actually, um, yeah, create a, uh, something whole. And can you just say something about how you use literature and how you read it, uh, and how you build build up a political argu- political argument from reading uh, Knausgård, for example? <laughs> yeah. So. Great question. I mean, because one of the things um, that I'm trying to show specifically in my, in my reading of Knauskod and my struggle is just on the very um, concrete, first personal, phenomenological standpoint, you know, the struggle to own your life, not in the sense of like having sovereign mastery of it, but like acknowledging in practice that you are at stake in what you do and that, you know, whether you seize it or lose it or take care of what matters or disregard it is, you know, at stake all the time in our lives. And we can become attuned to that in a deeper way for literature. Uh, And that sort of prepares the way from like, then I'm going to talk in the second half of the book about Mm. like, which are the social material conditions that would allow us to be socially formed in such a way that we can really uh, 
take great, greater responsibility for that question of what is worth doing and o- take ownership of our responsibility for our actions and so on. But I think it, yeah, to first ground that in the sort of first personal lived experience, um, that just um, allows me to, again, draw this very important connection between uh, the personal and the political, the individual and the collective in a way that sort of moves very gradually um, mm. because lots of people who, if I had started immediately in the second half, yeah, would for have sure. jumped ship. <laughs> now I very carefully take people along. Yes. And actually, uh, you mentioned earlier that one can love one part of the book and some people love one part of the book and not so much the other one. Mm. But then that becomes a very productive dialogue because they're like, I really agree with you about this, but how can you then say that? Mm. And that's an opening for conversation. That is also an important ambition of the book. That's part of the sort of imminent critique of the book. I want to like take people along with like commitments we can share and then like try to show them where it has to lead. So let's talk yeah. about yeah. that. That's yeah. a great pivot. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting. I don't want to dwell always on these two parts, but but I would like to revisit it. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, but so maybe the interesting, I don't know, for me, just listening again to what you said, Martin, it's one of the fundamental questions is, is this a book of the left? Um, are you a, a, a person of the left? Um, <laughs> I mean, you're, could I either say you're um, uh, an accidental leftist or a closeted Marxist? I don't know, in this book. Not it's, so it's closeted. A, <laughs> no, in the end, not. But, but throughout the book, it emerges. But it's really this question, as you say, Karen, from moving from literature to politics. Yeah. I mean, that's the journey in the book. Or it's also your personal journey. I mean, that's also the question, where is the politics <laughs> actually, I mean, get into your li- life? Mm-hmm. Um, but but this... Um, also, this wrestling with authors that are clearly not of the left in, in no way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Knausgaard, yeah. St. Augustine, um, yeah. C.S. Lewis, Kierkegaard. It's an interesting journey to see you move through, through the, yeah, to wrestle with these authors. And it's not clear, actually, just from thinking about the book, that if you knew at the beginning where you would end, yeah. um, or... Yeah, so how your personal journey, I mean, that's going back to the very first question, yeah. how your personal journey with that book was. I don't know how long you wrote it, what happened in between, but but really, yeah, what's the lefty, what's the left part? Is it a book of the left? Is it a book for the left? Is the left even able to take that on? That's for something for later? Is, is um, mm-hmm. the, the concrete policy? I think later is now. Is later is now? Is that yeah, the, later the, is now. Is that the overall? Is that the new claim for the podcast? <laughs> later is now. Yes. The new world. Later yeah, is now. That's, that's good, not so bad. That's yeah. a good headline, yeah. actually. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's ends up being a book with very strong leftist commitments or Marxian commitments, uh, understood in the right way or understood the way I want to it to be understood. But it's very important that uh, again, this has to do with the method of imminent critique in the book that. Uh, that's also why in the second half of the book, I pursue a lot of the arguments through engagements with like liberal or neoliberal economics, like, you know, Hayek and Keynes and Rawls and so on. Um, so, uh, so it's definitely like a book for the left, but not only a book for the left. And, it's, and it wants to show in practice a different way of motivating and justifying fundamental leftist commitments, but why they are universalizable in principle. So, uh, um, but then in terms of like how I wrote the book, I think I was led gradually, uh, you know, uh, via Hegel, I was led to Marx. And if I really want to think seriously about uh, 
making the case that secular life and secularization is not in itself a loss, an existential or moral loss, but insofar as our current state of secularization is unsatisfying, it's because we haven't fulfilled the ideals of freedom. Uh, then, like, Marx came in there because he's the person who really allows you to think that, who really uh, believes in the modern promise of freedom, but believes it can only be realized and actualized by the overcoming of capitalism. So I was really... Uh, Did you struggle with that? Yeah, you know, I struggled immensely with it. And, and uh, I think it one can... Because I had, because I came from it just thinking through the implications of my own philosophical commitments, mm. um, and uh, and that's also because why I sort of ground my reading of Marx on a very fundamental philosophical level, and then just to f- really think through that thought about like uh, uh, you know our essential status as social material beings, and that being not a restriction but a condition of our freedom. Uh, yeah then Marx just opened up as the, the most profound resource for thinking through all those questions. So, mm. But that led me to, ha- I had to give up a lot of uh, sort of unreflected assumptions I had about um, uh, politics and economics and so on. And, and uh, um, Social democracy? Yes, yes, <laughs> completely, completely. I mean, having grown up in Sweden, as, mm. you know, I think I had this intuition as a lot of people do that, like, well, you know, it's in principle, if only just the whole world can become a welfare state or whatever, like this is like, this is, uh, it's enough to reform capitalism in this way. Mm-hmm. And like Marx really forced me to give up that sense, which I didn't give up easily. Uh, but I think that made also my reading all the more uh, painstaking. Mm. It also in the pain sense, but yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the move in the book then uh, is that you move from, you define or you think hard about freedom, what it yeah, means. Yeah. Uh, and then... Your conclusion is that f- freedom um, is impossible within um, um, an economic system that, uh, yeah, the, with a profit motive is at the center of things, basically capitalism or capitalism. So what you say is, yeah, there's just no way we can reform it. And uh, you take issue with uh, thinkers like Piketty. And and we had this discussion earlier today also that you say I yeah I, I don't believe in re- redistribution anymore I'm not against it but it's not going to lead us to freedom real freedom is that more or less yeah I mean it's very important though that I also a big deadlock of the left has been the sort of antinomy between reform and revolution mm. uh, and I, I try to be very explicit that it's not I'm against reforms or redistribution at all but I al- but I want to give a rigorous account of why uh Uh, the inherent contradictions of all forms of reforms and redistribution and why even to understand those challenges that we'll face under a capitalist system, we have to understand the deeper contradictions that Marx elucidates Mm. and why, uh, you know, the commitment to actualize freedom and equality requires a deeper sort of revaluation, how we even measure value. Mm. But it's very important that that's not to dismiss reforms or redistribution, but demonstrating why they're not sufficient. So you lay out this argument uh, in in your book, but could you just to the listeners explain why is freedom incompatible with capitalism? Right. Well, the, 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 yeah, the uh, well, the first thing I want to say is that freedom, since on one level we cannot but be free, so of course we're free in one sense under capitalism. Mm. But uh, in terms of 
Uh, one very important notion of freedom that is that's in the book is Hegel's notion that freedom has to do with mutual recognition. So freedom is not the freedom to do whatever or to be free from constraints. It's being able to recognize yourself and affirm the relations of dependence in which you stand. That's why Hegel's examples of freedom are always like love and friendship and so mm. on. Like when I can like see that the obligations I'm uh, stand under or what, what I need to do is not a restriction on my freedom. It is the exercise of my freedom to care for the things that I value as ends in themselves, even if it's hard or difficult and so on. Uh, and that there is this unique recognition, partly enabled by capitalism, that each person is an end in themselves, that time is valuable and so on. But that neither in production or consumption can we... Uh, uh, we are instead of you know being free to take responsibility and justify what we're producing and why what we're consuming and why that's already subordinated to the sort of purpose of profit that in advance uh, shapes and distorts what we can. No, but from uh, to, to be more precise about yeah. your vision, it's yeah. called democratic socialism, which. Yeah. Uh, You claim communism was neither, uh, neither democratic nor socialism, so it didn't um, involve the whole of the people and it didn't really follow Marx's advice to, sort of, to each, uh, uh, from each to its uh, ability to, to each for his needs or, yeah. or her needs. Yeah. Um, or state capitalism. Basically. Yeah, yeah, state capitalism. So the maybe the simple question would be what are founding principles of this democratic socialism what's what's your concrete vision for a political system that that and that just to make that case again so sort of clear so sort of that would overcome capitalism would yeah. end capitalism yes just to come, again come say after. it yeah yeah or end come end. after yeah. yeah yeah overcome overcome yeah overcome let's say overcome because yeah. it's an imminent critique of capitalism so it, it, it's not something different from capitalism you would say it's a well it's it's a, it's, it's supposed to be like fulfillment of the sort of ideals of freedom and equality that we already hold. And it has basically three principles. Uh, I mean, uh, that uh, uh, we measure our social wealth in terms of like what I'm calling socially available free time. So that like the purpose of how we produce and organize our lives is, uh, you know, in light of like being able to devote ourselves to things that we can recognize and affirm as ends in themselves. Um, and then like why that requires that we can no longer produce for profit. That's what I mean by the collective ownership of the means of production, which doesn't mean... Yeah, but don't, yeah. don't just mumble it away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, 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 no. Yeah. stop. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> stop. Yes. What? Yes. What? Yes. But very important. Yeah, but say I mean. that again. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is, it's just we moved so fast into this. I thought it would be more of a gradual thing. But... Uh, That uh, So there is collective ownership of productive means. Yes, but that doesn't mean that there is an authoritarian state that owns the means of production, very importantly. What it means is that, you know, as a self-determining cooperative, for example, you... Uh, it's not like the state decides what you can produce, but it's that you can't use the means of production to, for the sake of profit. You know, you produce in light of social needs... That's the idea. But that doesn't mean that, that there's a state that also means fractional commands what should be produced. But that like, uh, and the idea is that we 
have learned, and I try to give all the reasons for that in the book, why as long as we produce for profit, we actually can't ask ourselves as producers, you know, what would be meaningful and sustainable and valuable to produce? In the, 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 the commandeering question is instead, what is profitable? How can I make a profit such that my enterprise will be sustained? And, and that, yeah. So, um, yeah. Can I ask, um, how do we get there? <laughs> oh, okay. So, like, we have to separate. Yes. First, we need, there, there, I see there are three different aspects here. And uh, I, we were... Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, we no, weren't we weren't through. Okay, no, no, let's no, wait. But, uh, yeah. no, no. but actually, like, because this is always what people jump to, so it's yeah. important to, to. No, I waited for I waited for forty five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so very importantly, like, um, I see it as a, the sort of systematic critique of capitalism that I'm trying to pursue in the book. It involves three three different stages, you could say. Like, one is a rigorous account of why. As long as we work, produce for profit and work for a wage, why there will be these contradictions that we can't resolve and that will actually like counteract rather than enable our freedom and our taking responsibility for what we produce and consume. That I do in the book on a very deep level. And uh, so like that's the account of like what's wrong with or what's contradictory about our current form of life. And then there is third stage mm. where like in light of which principles would we have to be organized to not be subject to these contradictions? And those principles are not blueprints. They, uh, you know, they're not just abstract principles that will solve these problems once and for all. They are general principles in light of which we would have to be organized. And then the in-between question is the transition question, yeah. uh, which I, for reasons I spell out in the book, suspend in the book, not because I don't think it's important, but because when we start there, uh, you know, then uh, you get stuck. You, you get stuck, and you also don't have, uh, uh, you know, because we if we don't know what's the fundamental contradictions and problems in our current form of life, and we don't know where we're committed to going, we don't even have the resources to hmm. address the transition question in the right in the right way. And what's happened a lot on the left is that like it's all about the transition and where, whether it's reform or revolution at the expense of not having a rigorous enough account of what are the problems of capitalism and why also capitalism is a form of historical progress, uh, you know, and why it enables ideas of freedom and equality that it can't fulfill, but that there are imminent resources within that form of life. Mm. That's what I'm trying to elucidate in stage one. And also, if we don't have a clear account of, like, uh, why we need a revolution and what the point of the revolution would be, uh, that the absence of both of those things will impede our ability to take on the transition question. So if I succeed in making the transition question urgent in a new way and enable for people to think about that in a new way, then I've accomplished what I'm trying to accomplish mm -hmm. in the book. Mm. And uh, if I had started with the transition question or taken that as a headline, then that is that would have just distracted from the sort of main philosophical task of the book, which is, again, a rigorous imminent critique of capitalism and a deduction of the principles for a free emancipated society. And that's so, not sufficient, but it's necessary. Yeah, can, so, I, can I ask? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, because I think it's interesting that you say that we jumped so too, too quickly to this point, maybe. Yeah. So maybe we're, we're missing... Uh, a link which I thought is interesting because this is already a very politicized and yeah. I wouldn't say standardized yeah. Marxism sort of review. Where, I mean, you, you you position Marx as a 
um, a light figure of yeah. a philosopher of freedom. So, yeah. so that's very, it's a very almost a sunny character all of a sudden <laughs> in, in in the book, which is an yeah. achievement in itself. Um, yeah. uh, even Hegel comes across as somebody who. Um, um, who you would like, uh, even understand, uh, sort of coming <laughs> yes. from a, from a German, yeah. Um, yeah. it's a compliment. Uh, yeah. um, but um, but I think it's interesting to dwell on because it, I think it's the link of the first part and the second part, or your, or maybe also an answer to to your question, Karin, so about this overcoming or this revolution question. It's uh, for me, it was enlightening to see. No, capitalism is an economy of time. So, yeah. so, so, so to understand yeah. that, how because it's very everyday, yeah. sort of like, and it, and it makes reflect in a lot of ways about choices yeah. you make in every and sort of in your life in yes. general, or or, or, yes. or every day, or the compromise that you yeah. make. So, if, I mean, maybe you can expand on that sort of the relationship between socially. Available time or necessary yeah. time. Do you want to I go mean, back now? I want to go back a okay. little. Yes, okay, because okay. I think it is it is interesting to understand the question of okay. both the transition and what comes after, mm. because it is the the place of revolution is actually time. Yes, absolutely, and it's also important because I think much of the appeal of the book uh, has been that uh, first of all, you led into the Marx issues through sort of fundamental philosophical reflections uh, about time and economy and and then and then you get a sort of ground up account of of Marx as someone who's also trying not is not against in a straightforward way like the bourgeois ideals of freedom and equality but actually tries to think through what it would mean to mm. keep faith with them uh, and then uh, showing that the sort of revaluation that I'm talking about is actually like appeals to values and commitments that we already hold you know so that's the sort of path that the book is taking uh, and 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 that just i think takes a lot of more people along with these sort of fundamental reflections so that you can like once you then come to that question that we jumped to very quickly uh we're all of a sudden attuned very differently and we're in a different very different mood because uh you know, I tr this is the, again the eminent critique aspect that that uh, uh, that so for example that uh, and this is the economy of time question that uh, I try to show like okay so if we're going to think about economy at all we have to think about like why does anything cost anything at all uh, how can there be economical questions at all uh, this is what I'm calling the fourth level of the analysis of the economy that Marx doesn't have but you need to ground it and. You know, the first thing we can see then is that, you know, only because there are beings who value their time can anything be a cost and can it be any economical question. So in a way, like the negative measure of value is like time you have to spend on things that are mere means to an end. It's not valuable in itself. Mm. That's the sort of time that we want to reduce uh, just by virtue. Yeah. And that's why we even invent any technologies in the first place to save time. And so as to free up time that we can devote to activities that we affirm as not just mere means to an end, but as ends in themselves. Uh, and that the true expansion of our freedom would be to expand the time we can devote to things we can affirm as ends in themselves, which includes also time to discuss and question, are these really the ends we should have and so on. Uh, and then showing like why on one level, capitalism helps us to see that because Capitalism drives a technological development that is precisely about reducing 
labor time, but it can't affirm that as valuable itself because it has to exploit labor time to create value. Um, so thereby, like seeing that, you know, our true measure of wealth already is, uh, you know, not free time in the sense of like time to like do nothing or just hang out, but like time devoted to things that are valuable and meaningful, which can be very socially meaningful and necessary work. But that like, and that we would be more free the more we can own that question about what it's worth doing and why that's both promised to us by capitalism and can't be fulfilled under capitalism. This is a very long argument that no, I'm just no, going to indicate for the reader. Obviously, you have to traverse the book to see it, but uh, you, you know, I start on that very fundamental level. So as also to see why economic questions are existential questions. Yeah. From the no. But it's interesting, if I may ask uh, yeah. sort of that follow-up question, sort of because I, just to throw in another big word, um, progress. So yes. in, in your argument, I guess there is no real progress in capitalism because any valuable, meaningful progress would be progress for the individual. And there is no – and that relates to the question of technology, which is mm -hmm. interesting for both of – for all of us. But, but we're currently I both – wrote a book about technology um, mm -hmm. and, and engage with the questions of, and as you do at mm -hmm. some point in, in, the, in the book as well, about digital technologies. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I guess you could make that point for any technology in the last 300 years. Um, did it really, uh, did progress really pay off in terms of freedom for mm -hmm. the individual? Mm -hmm. and, and I guess your argument would be uh, no. Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> This is again the imminent critique thing. It's very important that... Um, And I'm glad you raised the progress question because it's a very important one and one that the left often has thrown out all too easily. So the first thing to say is that uh, Marx argues, and I highlight, that uh, capitalism is a form of historical progress in the precise sense it's the first, uh, and specifically institutional wage labor, it's the first social form that in principle recognizes, formally only, but still, the value of everyone's time. You know, even if that, you know, many forms of slavery have persisted on capitalism, but in principle, you know, we have now like a normative commitment that like, you know, everyone owns their time and, and, and thereby that's sort of overcoming of a sort of master-slave conception. Uh, and that is what also provides a foothold for them. Like, well, well, but can we truly value our time as an end in itself under capitalism? I try to show why, why not. Uh, and that also means that there are... Uh, Uh, te the technological development that is spurred by the capitalist profit motive, uh, both through that we learn historically that we can reduce the time we have to spend on activities that are mere means. That's what, another thing that we can learn historically. It's very, very important for the sort of Hegelian and Marxian approach that I have that, you know, we can only figure out these things through historical experience. Uh, and we have to also give an account of what we have learned about ourselves through capitalism, what it learns about what we can do and cannot do. Um, so, uh, yeah, but the point is just that, like, technology, uh, uh, um, it's not enough to just take control of the technology we have for collective ends. Is that, like, the profit motive, like, forms how we even develop our technologies in the first place and, like, the machines would be different if we had different purposes. So, like, you know, for that potential of progress and emancipation to be fulfilled, capitalism has to be overcome. But the reason I said yes and no is just that, uh, uh, again, it's a, it's a contradiction because it it's both opens that 
promise of technology being in the surf service of leading our lives as social individuals, uh, enhancing our communication, our mutual understanding, etc. But then also showing why that purpose is thwarted, contradicted, as long as the overarching purpose or the, uh, the, 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 the primary purpose is profit rather than our well-being. Yeah. No, I think, and, and, and that's also an important point, I think, in your book, that it's not like you want to go back or it's not a nostalgic, you're, as Marx, you're building on the structures that already exist and yes. you want to, but, and you want something else to be at the center instead of the profit motive, then this question of time. And I think, I mean, also going back to what speaks, what it is in your book that speaks to, 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 to people, I think there is just this very intuitive feeling that time, the time, I'm not uh, the master of my time. And the feeling that actually as things uh, allegedly progress, it feels like I'm less and less the master of my time. It's like every more and more aspects of life are commodified, even sleep, even, um, even my, you know, personal data, everything is commodified. So Mark, like, yeah, the the profit motive sneaks into even the most intimate parts of, of of existence. So I think, yeah, that's... Uh, Can I yeah, just say yeah, one thing about yeah. that? Because it's very important. I think it's, uh, again, something that the book has, from what I hear, helped a lot of people see that these things that we can think about as like, as just regrettable accidents, yeah. that like, oh my God, everything is being commodified. Why that's not an accident as long as we have the sort of value form mm. that Marx is analyzing. And, and then we can grasp that actually for these things to change, it's not just a matter of like our individual priorities changing, exactly. but that like this is something that we're collectively sustaining that we collectively have to change. Uh, and to, also yeah. it's not something you can opt out of as, yes. a, per- as exactly. a single single yeah. individual. It's, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, I'm sorry, but um, we need to talk more about democratic socialism. And, <laughs> and uh, Georg, do you want to... You look, yeah, weird look on your face right now. No, no, ask you. No, no, I wanted to, I wanted to, um, we had the conversation earlier today and I mentioned the word utopia and you yeah. kind of uh, recoiled or you, you didn't feel comfortable with that word and you also write about it in, in the book. But so let me just say, I'm struggling, maybe mm. as you did when you wrote yeah, the book, yeah. uh, also as someone who's of the left coming yes. from from social democracy yes. and now struggling with where we are in the world yeah. and I'm very I'm challenged by your um, uh, radical vision let's call it that yes. of a different society I think it's necessary in many ways I think we need radical visions I but I'm I, I struggle with it because I can't see it I can't understand how to get there I, it's like a blank uh, right. for me um, like moving from where we are to to where you where you talk about uh, right. the society that you talk about. So why, like, is it possible, do you think, in a world where our our brains are, I mean, we're so limited. I, I feel that myself. I feel very limited in how I'm able to think about a different world. I want to be able to think about it by, I'm, I struggle with it. Yes. Um, what do you... What do you say about that? Absolutely. I mean, struggling with that, I think, for me, has been one of the most interesting and challenging aspects of both writing the book and then also writing this long 
tripartite essay I wrote for Los Angeles yes. Review of Books. On the, and we should really tell our uh, listeners to to read that uh, symposium. It's uh, free online. The Los yeah. Angeles Review of, uh, of Books um, did a whole issue on your book. Yeah, and I and for me that very long tripartite response was really an opportunity to deepen the vision of the book, especially in part three, uh, and really give an account of uh, in more with more concretion than I do in the book of, of, of how a different society could be organized. But the first thing I want to say, and that was really helpful for me in struggling with the same things that you mentioned, is that you have to make a distinction between when you say, like, I can't see it. Mm. There's a difference between uh, not seeing how we get there versus not being able to see ourselves and our values and the principles to which we already appeal yeah. there. And it's the second thing that's really important. And the sort of utopia I'm resisting uh, that I'm criticizing in Adorno and other people in the book is is a conception of utopia where, like, we would no longer be finite. There would no longer be scarcity. We'd no longer be vulnerable. And so on. That, that's, that's, that's something we literally can't see ourselves in because it would abolish the basic conditions of our lives. Whereas the vision I'm presenting is one that we should be able to see. And that's how I've deduced the principle. It's not like I'm sitting around imagining these things. I'm saying, like, what what can fulfill the idea of general freedom and equality, which principles does that demand? Even, as I do in the LA Review of Books, try to show that, like, what's what someone like Hayek called a rational price mechanism and the way he tries to justify it and why it allows to communicate the relation between supply and demand, why that price mechanism actually can only be fulfilled if we organize our society in mm. the way that I suggest. So taking these liberal commitments and showing that, like, actually for the world to function the way you already claim it to function, we have to, we can no longer produce for profit and work for a wage. And this is how we would work and this is how we would produce and coordinate and cooperate without the profit motive and without wage labor. Hmm. And I hope, at least I'm trying to make that vision palpable in the sense that you could see ourselves and our commitments in it and then... No. And that's then supposed to make the transition question both urgent and painful and super difficult. And mm. I don't have the answers for that. But that's a very important distinction between we shouldn't conflate not being able to see how we get there without not being able to see our values and our commitments in it. Those are two very different things. Yeah. And I'm trying to show how we can see ourselves there so as to like really uh, redirect our attention to that uh, other question about how to get there. Uh, but if I had started there, you would just start with a roadblock and you can't like, uh, uh, because you have to overcome these intuitions that are very deep seated that like, well, how could we, for example, uh, uh, you know, if we don't have a capitalist market, then the only alternative is central planning authority, for example. Yeah. Uh, that's a very deep intuition that both the right and the left has shared. I try in general and concrete terms to show like, no, that's a fault. That's those are not the only two options. No, uh, yeah. that, that sort of thing. And that opens new horizons. And again, I'm not saying that any of this is sufficient, but it opens new horizons in light of which we can understand where we are and where we're committed to going. And if I can contribute to that, then uh, I've done what I set up. To do. Because what you do in the third part of this symposium yeah. uh, is basically uh, a blueprint for uh, a society. I mean, it's, 
it's a couple of pages, so it's yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not yeah. a whole constitution. Yeah. But it's about it's a society with cooperatives uh, where mm. you say state is subordinated to society. Yeah. It's the state is not repressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also uh, env- envision a global uh, federation of societies and yeah. how that would work. So yeah. it's and the rational price mechanism and the rational price mechanism. So it's very, I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very concrete in a way. It's very important. So. And again, we could have spent a lot of time just on the three principles, but let me just also say something about the status of them. I make this distinction between, I say they are general without being abstract. Let's say, because if they were abstract, they would just be, this would solve all the questions. These are like general principles in light of which we have to be organized to actually enable democracy. And then I say like they are concrete without being particular because I don't have a particular blueprint of how everything has to be worked out, but I have a concrete account uh, of, you know, the economic organization that has to be in place to enable rather than disable our freedom and our responsibility. And that's so it's a very specific level mm. at which it is pitched mm. uh, uh, that, um, yeah, that try to be very careful about. And that's supposed to open a space of political reflection that we uh, tend to close down when we like yeah, I have these assumptions about human nature based on the sort of historical mode of material production that we're subjected to. And like, yeah, this might be bad in various ways, but it's the only way to get anyone to do anything. Uh, you know, the standards, mm. motivations for why, uh, because most people we can see that there are all sorts of pernicious aspects of capitalism, but this is like the best we can do. Yeah. And not only the right, but much of the left has ceded to that. And it's, for me, it's especially interesting that a lot of liberals who claim to believe in progress pedal that narrative because it's really like one way like yeah the, yeah the only measure we have is like what we've done so far and because everything else has failed and this is still sort of working this is the best we can do this is all we can be uh, and I'm trying to show no, no but by our own lights uh, about like what globalization would be what like a rational price mechanism would be why that's not just accidental but in principle impossible under the capitalist mode of production, and then showing like uh, not as a wild anarchy, but like as a as a concrete vision of a different way of organizing ourselves, uh, we could learn to be free. Mm. So maybe um, to, uh, <clears throat> to sorry, to, I'm to, to wrap to, too to, much, to, to, no, 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 no. Um, maybe to go full circle in this conversation and also involve a term that's both uh, Latin, sort of. Controversial? No, it has a specific meaning in both German and Swedish context, mm-hmm. and, and that you uh, employ to make that transition clear, and, and maybe um, from capitalism to something that comes mm-hmm. afterwards, and, and maybe to connect it to your reading of freedom as something mm-hmm. that's not uh, monistic in some way, but yeah. also always spiritual in the sense that mm-hmm. it involves it involves history, the other yeah. sort of in, in, a, in a greater context. Um, could could you? Um, you write in the book that that um, after capitalism, um, life after capitalism, uh, we have to determine uh, we have uh, have to have a determined form. Uh, no, for, for life, you write that uh, life after capitalism to have any determined form, we must reinvent rather than abolish the form of the state. So the state is a very 
Hegelian term yeah. that has a different meaning in Sweden and, and yeah. has also yes. potentially an oppressive, not freedom, oh, yeah. invoking meaning in Germany. I don't know about yeah. Sweden so much. Some but, um, but But you also introduce it to sort of, um, you say that it has to be subordinate, as, as Karin said at the beginning, mm -hmm. I think, to society, which yeah. is a very, I guess, neither Swedish nor German okay. term, more an Anglo-Saxon concept or French concept of, yeah. of, of how to organize. Yeah. Um, society um, yeah. as a society. Um, could, could you sort of describe that reinvention of, of the state um, as something that's, as you say, sort of organized around collectives, maybe, or, or collective self-legislation? So if you, you have a very concrete proposal, but, but yeah. sort of how that, how that state would look. Absolutely, because this was one of the things in the book, even though I was clear about the way I was using the state, I realized that because it's such an overdetermined notion, both for the right and the left, uh, I needed to more patiently disentangle the the, mean, the the sort of emancipatory notion of the state, and you know, and Marx himself says uh, that um, you know, yeah, we would have to reinvent the functions of the state, but in a way that it's you know, it's not it's subordinated to society rather than the other way around. The way I try to spell that out is that instead of the state. Uh, as it is in the capitalism being like uh, a means for various class antagonisms and to like enable competition and coercion in various ways. The function of the state, both locally and globally, would be to enable coordination and cooperation. And I try to give a very concrete account of that means that we go from competition and coercion to coordination and cooperation. Uh, and yeah, how that would function both on a local and a global level. Uh, and again, this is not a utopian blueprint account, but it's a general and concrete account of like uh, uh, in which we should we, we should be able to see the fulfillment of like, uh, you know, how we already try to justify global and local regulation mechanisms as enabling those those things are already there in, in liberal and neoliberal sort of claims for globalization uh, and taking those seriously and showing that they actually require this kind of transformation to be what someone like Hayek claims that they already are. So. And maybe to, 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 as a desiderat, uh, for, yeah. so as, as, as something that we discussed before a bit, um, maybe has to do with the time that you wrote the book in, mm -hmm. so of the length of the process, is, is the question of um, climate change, which is... Yeah. Um, One might say lamentably absent in the book yeah. or, or understandably absent, um, but um, is, of course, inherently tied to not this life only, but all life, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, just in, in the end of the LRB, L-A-R-B. Um, And also you wrote in New um, Statesman about... Yeah. You, you, yeah. you picked that up. I, I was just wondering how that would affect the whole argument of the book um, yeah. in, in the Anthropocene or Capitalocene, which is probably yeah. the better. Yeah, term. well, and not to be pedantic, but actually the book actually begins and ends sort of with the climate thing. It, you know, there's more to be said about it. Sort of. Yeah. yeah, but it's definitely there. And I have an engagement with yeah. Naomi Klein in the conclusion trying to show uh, why uh, her sort of redistributive vision is not sufficient. But in the... Uh, uh, Towards the end of the book, and even more elaborately in the LARB piece, I really uh, try to use that as the most stark instantiation of this general problem I'm highlighting. Because now we have a sense of like, well, we need to have a responsible relation 
to nature. We need to uh, take responsibility for the actual costs of our production and our consumption and so on. And I try to show why as long as we produce for profit and work for a wage, we can't uh, actually take that sort of responsibility. And part of the whole discussion of the price mechanism is actually like, you know, how we would have to be organized such that we can actually measure the cost of our production in light of standards of values that we affirm and that can be responsive to uh, the scarcity of natural resources, environmental conditions, all of those things. And this is another example of like, these are commitments we already pledge ourselves to. We have to produce and consume in a sustainable way. And we also see that somehow like, we are responsible for this. That's one of the, some of the things that the general climate change discourse brings out. But then seeing that like, instead of treating that in a moralizing way, mm. where like, look, we are sinful fallen creatures or egoistic atoms or are hopeless and maybe we should just die out anyways because we are responsible for this. Seeing that like, well, we are responsible for it in the sense of this is, this is an effect of how we collectively produce and consume. But, you know, changing that and taking actual responsibility for it can't be reduced to individual moral behavior, but requires these sort of systemic changes. And part of that work uh, requires an intelligible account of how we could actually, uh, both as producers and consumers, own our responsibility for the actual real costs of what we produce and consume. And that's, you know, part of what I'm trying to explain, how that would be possible and why it is impossible as long as we produce for profit and work for a wage. So I think that's a good uh, place. We started, <laughs> we started this whole conversation saying that our conviction is that the current way of doing things is not sustainable. And we're ending uh, in the same place. So I think we should uh, stop right there. And uh, thank you so much, Martin Heglund. This is only one life. And uh, <laughs> we had one hour, but we stretched it a bit. So Absolutely. one life and uh, a few minutes more. Yeah, yes. thank you. Thank you for... Um opening up this enlightened discourse on Thank the you. future of the left, uh, yes, which we'll continue to do here. Yes. It's really supposed to be, the book wants to be like, open up conversation rather yeah. than close them down. So, um, you know, I, I hope this, if this leads people to have more questions, that's just great. And we hope and we uh, contributed to that a higher level of confusion with, the <laughs> with, this, with this episode of uh, The New World. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.